Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, an unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. The expression, an eye for an eye, is a simplification for the law of retaliation. It suggests that if one person injures another person, that they should be subject to the same degree of injury. In this day of trial by social media and immediate condemnation before all the facts are presented, have we lost the concept of due diligence? Where will we find redemption or rehabilitation? Is murder the right punishment for murder? A wise person once said that an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. On April 19th, 2018, two bodies lay on the ground in the Peruvian jungle. They are both facing up towards the same sky. As people, their lives could not have been more different. Yet their names will be forever tied together. These are the murders of Olivia Aravalo and Sebastian Woodruff. And this is True North True Crime. Welcome to episode 13 of True North True Crime. As always, we want to thank you for joining us this week, as well as thank you to everyone who has given the podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts. And thank you to everyone who has reached out to say hi to us through our email, as well as our social media. Yeah, it really is great to hear from all of you. And um, we do our best to get back to everybody. So I hope uh, we've said hi back to whoever we could. We'd also like to extend a big thank you to Christy at Canadian True Crime for featuring our podcast on her podcast, and we want to congratulate her on being named by Apple Podcasts as one of the biggest shows of 2020. 
Yeah, we want to also thank Bobby at Killer Stories for shouting out True North True Crime uh, and also congratulate her on her recent milestone with her podcast. So in today's episode, we will be talking about a double murder that occurred in Peru in 2018. This double murder was pretty sensationalized on social media and made international headlines. Yeah, we are, of course, talking about the murder of 81-year-old Peruvian shaman Olivia Arvalo Lomas, which was followed quickly by the murder of a 41-year-old Canadian man by the name of Sebastian Woodruff. So this episode is a lot to unpack. Uh, We will do our best to create a timeline for you. There is still a lot of speculation surrounding this case, and for some people, it has never really felt solved. We put this case together through many publicly available news articles. Uh, We usually don't engage in rumor or speculation. However, in this story, there is going to be more of that than usual uh, due to the fact that the information has been kind of leaked out in pieces over the last couple of years. And as always, as we push through the details of this episode, we want to be mindful that there are two communities, two families, and two countries that have lost loved ones in what seems like a senseless series of events. There are a lot of people out there that come out on either side of this case, but we will do our best to find a balance. This story centers around two people whose lives were so far apart from one another and yet ended up on a collision course that shocked the world. So I guess it's best for us to start at the beginning uh, with Sebastian Woodruff. At the time of this incident, Sebastian Woodruff was a 41-year-old Canadian man living in the Comox Valley region of Vancouver Island on the west coast of Canada. Yeah, we've talked about Vancouver Island in previous episodes. It's a huge island off the west coast of British Columbia that has a population of about 900,000 people. Comox is a gorgeous little town that's surrounded by mountains, rivers, lakes, and ocean. If you're an outdoorsy type, the Comox Valley is for you. The town of Comox has a population of about 15,000 people, but it's kind of squished up against another neighboring town called Courtney, which has a population of about 25,000 people. People often refer to Courtney and Comox as the same entity by saying something like, yeah, I'm in the Courtney-Comox area. Comox does have a bit of a transient population, as it is home to CFB Comox, which is a Canadian Air Force base. Comox is on the traditional and unceded territory of the Comox First Nations. It is a pretty ideal place to grow up and live, although it can feel a little sheltered from the world. Yeah, so Sebastian Woodruff was born on October 26, 1976. He was actually born in Barrie, Ontario. His father was a member of the Royal Canadian Air Force, who retired after four decades of service. From all indications, Sebastian had a pretty normal upbringing uh, on Vancouver Island when his family eventually moved there. In his early 30s, he had a son. The mother of his child and Sebastian didn't end up staying together, but they did remain good friends as they co-parented their son. Sebastian worked a few different types of temporary jobs as an adult. While he didn't stick to one particular career path, he did work as a tree planter, construction worker, and he did seasonal work as a sea urchin diver. As a person, he was a bit of a seeker and didn't subscribe to the normal 9-to-5 lifestyle. He seemed to crave more from life on a spiritual level. He was fascinated by indigenous cultures. He also participated in the annual Sundance ceremony, which meant fasting, praying, and physically sacrificing his body. The ceremony involved piercing the skin with a hook and being tethered to a tree. This practice leaves scars on the bodies of its participants. 
Friends and family described Sebastian as a generous and caring person. He had a big heart and cared about others. He knew all of the homeless people in his town by name and would not hesitate to help others. Gary Woodruff, Sebastian's father, stated that Sebastian, quote, would give you the shirt off of his back, give you his last dollar. If you needed help, he'd always be there for you. His stepbrother would recall he had a strong philosophy that went against the mainstream lifestyle. He opposed consumerism, materialism, and technology. The guys who worked on the fishing boats with him called him sea bass. They described him as distant and wrapped up in his own world. From the minute I met him, I felt like he was lost and trying to find himself, said fellow diver Mike Kelly. He was the kind of guy you'd have a conversation with, and he would disappear, staring off into space. You'd ask him a question, and you would have to break him out of his thoughts. He'd just be gone entirely. Sebastian's spiritual seeking also led him to study the healing power of plants as medicine. It was around 2013 that Sebastian's now ex-brother-in-law would introduce Sebastian to ayahuasca. Apparently they had tried it at a ceremony in Whistler, British Columbia. His brother-in-law was interested in physics, quantum mechanics, atoms, energy, crystals, and all that. And he felt that ayahuasca would be something that Sebastian would be really interested in. So it's important here that we take some time to understand ayahuasca for those who are unaware of what it is. We will be using an article from Healthline.com as a basic introduction to Ayahuasca 101. Ayahuasca is also known as the tea, the vine, and la persia. This drink was used for spiritual and religious purposes by ancient Amazonian tribes and is still used as a sacred drink for tribes in the South, North, and Central America. Traditionally, a shaman or healer leads ayahuasca ceremonies and prepares the brew by boiling torn leaves, shrubs, and stalks of plants. The main ingredients of ayahuasca are, and I'm probably going to mispronounce these words, Banisteriopsis copy and Psychotria viridis. Both have hallucinogenic properties. However, it is the diamethyltryptamine, or DMT, which is the main deal for ayahuasca. DMT is a powerful hallucinogenic chemical. This powerful psychedelic brew affects the central nervous system, leading to an altered state of consciousness that can include hallucinations, out-of-body experiences, and euphoria. Ayahuasca has become popular worldwide among those who seek a way to open their minds, heal from past traumas, or simply experience an ayahuasca journey. It's strongly recommended that ayahuasca only be taken when supervised by an experienced shaman as those who take it need to be looked after carefully. They also vomit a lot. Like, vomiting is a big part of the ayahuasca trip. Yeah, apparently, as soon as you ingest it, you start vomiting before you're even high. So that, for me, would be like, nope. Yeah, well, you, you're you a metaphobic, so that would be a lot for you. But yeah, this is like six hours of people on and off Yeah, so vomiting. you're telling me I have, to, I have to vomit and then have, like, an insane trip? Like, it sounds like the worst time for me. Yeah, so sorry for any emetophobics out there that we're talking about this so much. Um, I'm also having a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> An ayahuasca trip can lead to an altered state of consciousness that lasts for many, many hours. So prominent members in the addiction and trauma recovery world are heavily um, promoting the healing powers of ayahuasca as an addiction treatment. If you've ever read Dr. Gabor Mate's books or heard him speak, you'll be very familiar with this concept. But I just want to add here that there are many roads to recovery from substance misuse or behavioral addictions. This may include abstinence, abstinence-based 12-step recovery, harm reduction, cognitive behavioral therapy, just to name a few. 
I don't discount any of these or ayahuasca. I just hope that people can find what works for them. But there is no magic cure-all bullet for addiction or addiction or trauma recovery. So I'm sure there's a few of you out there listening who think that this sounds like a great time. And you're not alone because ayahuasca has become a tourist industry in certain countries in Central and South America. People flock from all over the world to these retreats, dropping anywhere from three to ten grand, just for the opportunity to find spiritual enlightenment through ayahuasca. Some of the largest retreat centers have been known to pull in upwards of seven million U.S. dollars a year. That's insane. Yeah, very competitive market too. And you have to imagine that there are multiple of these retreats in similar regions, yeah. all pulling in you know, six, seven million dollars. This was the, the top 10 retreats in, in Central and South America are pulling in, you know, seven million dollars a year. And then there's all the other smaller ones that you could be making, you know, you know, a, a good, a good, li- and this, these are countries where, you know, $20,000 is, is a lot of money in a mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, two things changed Sebastian's life trajectory. The first was that he experienced the healing powers of ayahuasca firsthand at a ceremony in Whistler, B.C. The second was that he took part in an intervention for a loved one suffering with a substance misuse disorder. It was at this point in 2014 that Sebastian had a revelation that he wanted to be an addictions counselor and open a treatment center, possibly on Vancouver Island. So, he embarked on a plan which started with an online video in an Indiegogo campaign. His goal with this crowdfunding campaign was to raise $10,000 so that he could take ayahuasca in Peru and study with an indigenous Peruvian healer. He stated in his crowdfunding appeal, quote, I've decided to leave my career behind, and in September of 2014, I am starting school, beginning a six-year process to become an addictions counselor. Sebastian also wrote that he had an opportunity to study for three months with a Shipipo plant healer in Iquitos, Peru. The following is a quote from Sebastian's crowdfunding campaign. This man comes from a long line of healers going far back into the mists of time. I want to learn how plants can be used successfully in the treatment of people with addictions. The more I can learn and apply, the better I will be at helping in this line of work. Woodruff's campaign goal was to raise $10,000, which included 6800 for the healing center, 2000 for travel, and $600 for a Spanish translator. Apparently, he only raised $2,261, but he decided to move forward with his plan to go to Peru anyway. So just a side note here for anyone who's interested in this type of work or for people out there that do this type of work, and I mean the type of work as in working in addictions and recovery. Uh, I myself have worked in this line of work, and... It is not the kind of job where you just go get high in the jungle and then start a treatment center. Um, People I know in this work have started off with something as simple as an addictions counseling diploma program or have worked their way up to master's degrees in social work. Mm -hmm. Like the, the experience and the education needed in the addictions world right now and mental health is um, huge. Huge. Yeah. You need to have uh, you need to have an education. You need to have experience on the ground. You need to understand the way those people's minds work. You can't just go get high 
and think that you understand the, the universe yeah. and everybody in it all of a sudden. Yeah. And I get DMT. I get the spiritual pull of DMT. I get the open-mindedness. Mm-hmm. I get the, the, oh my God, I can help the world kind of feeling that you might get from the messages on DMT or ayahuasca. Or even and mushrooms or, you know, using... Psychedelics or, you know, MDMA yeah, or for, anything that... for mental health issues or, or anything like that. I We both, I believe, are firm believers that they are potentially very interesting tools to use towards to, these kinds of things. However... It's a tool in a tool tool belt. It's not. Yeah, you don't just you don't just jump from um, I've decided that I want to do this to opening a treatment center. Like there's a lot of stuff in the middle of it that you need to learn that's on the ground. So for people out there who do the work, thank you for the work that you do. And for people thinking about getting into it. Um, you know, do yourself that solid favor and the people that you're going to work with by getting some kind of education in the work. So Sebastian would end up going to Peru. And by all accounts, the trip went well. He spent some time in a wellness center called Baris Betza in Iquitos. And this retreat was managed by a man named Maestro Guillermo Aravalo. Guillermo Aravalo was the cousin of a famous shaman named Maestro Olivia Aravalo Lomas. It is this introduction that would change Olivia and Sebastian's lives forever. There's still a lot more to get through with regards to Sebastian, but... Let's just put a pin in that for a bit and talk to you about Maestro Olivia Aravalo Lomas. Maestro Olivia Aravalo was born in Ucayali, Peru, in February of 1937. Olivia Aravalo was an activist for human and environmental rights. She was a leader of her people, and she was a powerful shaman. Aravalo was considered a Minaya, or Muraya, a woman with the highest rank and mastery within her community, capable of entering the worlds of the shipipo Kanibo worldview, performing complex cures such as the cure of addictions or serious diseases. During her life, Olivia Aravalo became the spiritual leader of the shipipo Kanibo indigenous peoples. She was a wise indigenous woman and as such was responsible for the traditional knowledge of her people. As an activist, she was an active defender of the cultural and environmental rights of her people. She was also known for cultivating traditional medicine and the sacred songs of her people known as Ikaros, which are a big element of their culture and an expression of their harmonious relationship with nature. For a time, she worked with the Temple of the Way of Light as a teacher and healer, but her aging body would not permit her to travel to that center anymore. So, in her later years, she worked closer to home. She was known as a walking encyclopedia of plants and healing knowledge. She was respectfully referred to as a living ancestor and a record keeper of the Shipipo ways. Her work as a healer was well known in Peru and was also recognized internationally. People would travel from all over the world to get an opportunity to heal with her at her home in an area known as Victoria Gracia, which is the territory of the Shipipo Canibo people. Apparently what struck most people about her was that she seemed to be full of kindness and light. Uh, She would often giggle and laugh in what people described as a youthful or a childlike way. And I don't, that wasn't meant to be a demeaning way, like Mm -hmm. she wasn't childish, but that sort of joy of a child. The Shipipo Kanibo people are thought to have a population of about 35,000 scattered over a large area of the Amazon jungle in Brazil, Ecuador, Colombia, as well as Peru. The Shipibo Kanibo have traditionally lived along the Ukiyali River, a large tributary of the Amazon. 
Um, I guess the Franciscans eventually established a settlement in their territory, um, in the Shipibo territory, near what is the present-day port city of Pucalpa, and Pucalpa comes up later on. So despite this encroachment, the Shipibo Kanibo have managed to maintain many of their customary beliefs and traditions. They have their own language, which belongs to the Panoan language family, although most of them can speak Spanish as well. Interestingly, their society is matriarchal, with women having a dominant say in community decisions and being the primary artists. The Shipipo are a part of the Federation for Ukiyali and Affluent Native Communities, one of the oldest indigenous federations of the Peruvian Amazon. The Federation advocates for the recognition of indigenous communities' rights and the preservation of their ancestral territories. So like we said, Olivia lived in Victoria Gracia, which is a community in the eastern region of Peru. This area of Peru is in dense jungle and it shares its eastern border with Brazil. This area of Peru is not heavily policed and the Shipipo Canibo people often have to fend for themselves when they come under threat. Those threats usually come from illegal logging companies that often use cartel members as enforcers. The land of the Shipipo Canibo people is being forested at an alarming rate by those often unregulated logging companies. So yeah, we have this kind of powder keg happening in Victoria Gracia where the Shipipo Canibo people don't trust the authorities to help them and they're being overrun and bullied and murdered. Mm-hmm. Their activists are being murdered by uh, logging companies, mining companies, and palm oil companies that use cartel members to enforce on them. So this really sets the table for, you know, Sebastian Woodruff entering into this world. With an already distrustful people of outsiders. Yeah. So that's a little bit about Olivia Aravello Lomas and the Shipipo Canibo people of Peru. Let's get into what we know about Sebastian Woodruff's movements and the events that led to his death and the death of Olivia Arevalo after a quick break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And we are back. So as we laid out before the break, Olivia was a respected healer in her community. With the recent popularity of ayahuasca tourism, she had found herself becoming kind of famous. And as we stated before the break, Sebastian Woodruff had begun to travel to Peru seeking knowledge and enlightenment so that he could become an addictions counselor. 
So now we are going to lay out the events that led up to April 19th, 2018. We've used a few articles to put this timeline together, but specifically a CBC article titled Descent into Darkness. Sebastian would return to Comox from his first trip to Peru, and by all accounts, his entire trip went well. So it's rumored that Sebastian began organizing types of ayahuasca ceremony meetups back in British Columbia. Ooh, very illegal. Yeah, yeah, we should note that ayahuasca is illegal in Canada and in the United States. Um, in these meets, they would bring in a, a shaman to officiate the ceremony. And from what I understand, you can either find one in the United States or one that's living in Canada. And then you sort of like fly them into where you want to have your ceremony. Where the ayahuasca came from, though, is anyone's guess. People began to notice a shift in Sebastian's behavior. He became edgier and more aggressive. It got so bad that the other organizers told him he could sit in on ceremonies but he could not drink the tea. Yeah, I've actually known people who had similar experiences. Um, it was almost like they went to the spirit world one too many times and it began to negatively impact them. Like they they were getting all the right messages and messaging from ayahuasca trips and then it just kind of shifted and the dial moved and then it started just impact them negatively. Sebastian's personal life also began to change. He had a long-term relationship breakup, and at one point he began living in a camper van. On his Facebook, you can see posts about looking for a place to park it. Yeah, it seemed that as good as the trip to Peru had gone, it kind of further exacerbated Sebastian's negative feelings about how his life was going at home in Canada. It seemed the real world was taking its toll on him. So in the summer of 2017, Sebastian would go back to Peru. Most of his friends and family had no idea he had left. It was on this trip that two things happened. So the two very specific things that happened on this trip were, one, he connected with Julian Aravalo, which is Olivia's son. And the second thing was that Sebastian was rumored to be asking locals where he could buy a gun. In September of 2017, while still in Peru, Sebastian would contact the owner of the fishing boat he worked on in Canada. He would claim his passport and wallet had been stolen and ask the owner for a loan of several thousand dollars. He never received the loan. Instead, Sebastian would find himself back in Canada by the end of September 2017, working on the fishing boat. So once back in Canada, his family and friends would suggest that maybe it was time for him to stay in Canada, build a life, and leave Peru behind. They would attempt to point out all that was good in his life in Canada, including, you know, most importantly, his own son. His father would state, quote, He was sad about the way life was going at this time, I guess. We all have times in our life where things are down, and then things come back up. And if you can get some help, and you can get some assistance, then you can work your way through it. Gary Woodruff said that each trip to Peru seemed to close him off to his family. Gary said he wouldn't talk about what he did on the trips, and he wouldn't talk about a lot of things that went on. I implored him. I asked him many times, hey, let's sit down, talk about this, see where you're going, see what you want to do, and he would put it off. On December 15th, 2017, Sebastian would again go to Peru. Another odd series of events unfolded. Again, his passport and wallet were stolen. And again, Another witness claims that Sebastian had inquired where he could get a gun. So now on two separate trips, we have Sebastian asking about purchasing a gun from strangers. On this same trip, Sebastian made his way from Lima to Pucallpa, 
and then eventually deep into the jungle and the community of Victoria Gracia. While in Victoria Gracia, he sought out Olivia Aravalo. He asked her to heal him. She said she could, but then he seemed to just leave. Yeah, but, and now we're going to get into some hearsay here. Even the main articles about the Sebastian Woodruff, Olivia Aravalo stories are filled with um, witnesses said, or it has been rumored that. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot, that's why I said at the beginning of the episode, there's so much speculation in this one. So apparently Sebastian returned to see her multiple times with strange requests. He asked Olivia to take ayahuasca with him. She declined as she hadn't taken it in years and she was 81 years old. Like she's a shaman. She doesn't need to be getting ripped on ayahuasca. According to the villagers of Victoria Gracia, Woodruff seemed obsessed with the Arvalo family and his interactions with locals in Victoria Gracia were becoming more aggressive. Some neighbors found him prowling around there in the darkness. According to multiple accounts, Sebastian turned up in the community one night during a healing ceremony wanting to speak with Aravalo's son, Julian. Sebastian was reportedly carrying a long club and was initially turned away from the lodge. He tried to sneak back and apparently struck the man guarding the ceremony. Some villagers pursued Sebastian, but other locals intervened to stop him from being seriously hurt and ended up taking him to the police. Some community members claimed that they took Sebastian to the police on three separate occasions. But to be clear, the local police have no record of this or any of these events. Meanwhile, family back home had not heard from Sebastian and began to get worried. Apparently he didn't message, you know, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. So this prompted a friend to post on his, on Sebastian's Facebook timeline on January 3rd. It said, gotta ask, does anyone know where Sebastian could be? Family cares and has no idea. Please message me if you do. Thanks. Two days later, Sebastian would post that he was still alive. By February of 2018, Sebastian had returned once again to British Columbia. By all accounts, his spirits were low. He posted on Facebook, looking for a job, house, dot dot dot, basically a life. It also seemed that maybe Sebastian was done with Peru as he posted he wanted to get rid of all of his Peruvian currency. Again, Friends and family would convince him to live and thrive in the life and community he had in Canada. They all knew inherently that Sebastian was suffering from a mental health crisis, but they were not able to help him despite their efforts. Yeah, I don't think they were able to put um, the label mental health crisis on it as much as they were just really concerned about their friend and family member. Yeah, they knew there was something wrong. Exactly. So then on March 11th, 2018, he wrote this post. And it's kind of all jumbly writing with weird punctuation. I'm off to the jungle to do some soul searching and fix the mind. See you whence. I'm healed. FML part four. So despite pleas from his loved ones and the strange incidents in Victoria Gracia on his last trips, Sebastian decided that he needed to return to Peru. Before leaving Canada, Sebastian would contact Guillermo Aravalo, Olivia's cousin, and expressed that he needed help with his bipolar disorder. So now we've got a label for it. Did he, do we know if he ever got formally diagnosed with this? Or is this like a self? Um, I did, again, speculation and rumor. This is, this came from Guillermo. Okay. Had said that he, you know, he called him and said, listen, I've got, I've got bipolar and I need help. So although Sebastian expressed this to Guillermo, they did not meet up in Peru as Guillermo was out of the country at the time. So again, this would be the first outward admission of anything 
you know, mentally to do wrong. Yeah, declining mental health or whatever. Yeah. On March 14th, 2018, Sebastian was living in a series of low rent rooms in the city of Pucallpa. Two weeks into arriving in Peru, Sebastian would post this on Facebook around March 28th. I'm feeling better day by day in Peru. So thankful to be sitting with good peeps. I am leaving the place I am at due to a tribal disagreement. But then, on March 30th, Sebastian would walk into a local police station and ask where he could buy a gun. Again. He eventually connected with Glauco Utia, a 25-year-old police officer on duty that day. According to Utia's statement, Sebastian explained that he needed a gun because he was going into the jungle and wanted protection from animals. Utia went along and asked him how much he wanted to spend. Sebastian said that he had 5,000 souls, about 2,000 Canadian dollars, and Utia agreed to sell him a 9mm Taurus, which was a pistol that Utia owned. Over the next couple days, Sebastian and Utia arranged the paperwork for the sale of the gun. The fact that Sebastian didn't have a gun license apparently wasn't a problem. It also wasn't a deal breaker when Sebastian said he could only come up with 3,000 souls. The sale was finalized on April 3rd. Then days later on April 5th, he would post this. Not enjoying life right. Having a rough go. Please send me prayers dot dot dot. Days later, he would post the following. Coming home soon and need a place to call home. PM friends if you know anything. He followed that by posting on Facebook, still looking for a place to live in Courtney. Love my own place, but open to a roommate, I cook. So clearly we have some erratic behavior going on here, and things would get, unfortunately, even worse. On the evening of April 14th, Sebastian would walk into a police station and declare that he had been robbed. According to a police report, he would state that two men claiming to be police officers demanded he hand over his backpack, which contained his driver's license and passport and insurance and the registration for the motorcycle he was using and a cell phone. The gun apparently was not reported stolen. Yeah, and so for those counting, this is like the third time he's had Lost. his passport. And, yeah. but, and then I also found on his Facebook that something similar happened in Mexico. So he seems to have this happen a lot. The following events on April 19th have been pieced together from witness statements from the villagers of Victoria Gracia. There are some conflicting accounts of what happened, which is what makes this story feel unresolved to a degree. On the morning of April 19th, Sebastian left the home he was renting and got on a motorcycle that he was using that was owned by the person he was renting a room from. He made his way to Victoria Gracia by noon that day and went to Olivia Aravalo's home. Witnesses state that Sebastian was yelling outside of the home, demanding to speak with Julian Aravalo, Olivia's son. Some witnesses state that Julian ran out the back door. It is hypothesized that Julian owed Sebastian money. Julian denies this and also says he wasn't even at his mother's home. When Julian did not come out to meet Sebastian, witnesses say Sebastian fired a gunshot into the air. There's also another rumor that Julian appeared at the window, which caused Sebastian to shoot his gun into the air. Olivia Aravalo came out of her home and admonished Sebastian for firing the weapon. The argument between Woodruff and Aravalo escalated as they faced off at the side of her house. Some witnesses claim that Sebastian demanded that Olivia sing an Ikaro, or a spiritual song, but she refused. He then raised his gun and shot her twice in the chest. The 81-year-old shaman, medicine woman, and spiritual leader of her people lay dead in the dirt outside of her home. 
She was barefoot, wearing a black skirt and an orange blouse that was stained red with her blood. She lay face up, staring at the sky. Hours later, a wanted poster would begin circulating on social media identifying Sebastian Woodruff as the killer of Olivia Aravalo. The following is what the poster said. Please, brothers, help pass this on Facebook. This is the man who killed our teacher, Olivia Aravalo, after making her sing in Icaro. He found her alone, asked her to sing, and then killed her. But it turns out this poster was misleading. It was meant to distract people from the truth. And the truth was that Sebastian Woodruff was not on the run. He was already dead. So let's get into what we know about Sebastian's last moments, the trial, and the fallout after a quick break. And we are back. So as we said before the break, a wanted poster was circulating accusing Sebastian of the murder of Olivia Aravalo. But the poster was a ruse as Sebastian was already dead. So after Olivia was shot, it is believed that Sebastian got on his motorcycle in an attempt to flee. Apparently he hit a dip in the road and fell to the ground. The angry community members then pulled Sebastian off of the motorcycle and began to beat him. Apparently his gun fell out of his backpack or was pulled out of his backpack, and it was the same gun that he had purchased from uh, Utia. Witnesses were told not to call the police. Due to systemic distrust in the law enforcement, it was decided that justice was going to be served by the mob. On April 21st, two days after Olivia's murder, a cell phone video was released showing Sebastian's final moments. The footage went viral and made international news. The footage shows Sebastian slumped over in a mud puddle beside a structure with a thatched roof. He has clearly been beaten and holds the back of his head with one hand. He is wearing a shirt, jean shorts, and sneakers. He is moaning, pleading, incoherent, his face beaten to a bloody pulp. Someone yells, Why did you kill her, you son of a bitch? More than a dozen onlookers casually stand by as a man fashions a noose out of a car seat belt. The man approaches Sebastian and forces the noose around Sebastian Woodruff's neck. Sebastian tries to push the noose off, but he's unsuccessful. Some onlookers yell, pull, pull. Two men then violently drag Sebastian through the dirt between the village structures. After a few minutes, Sebastian attempts to breathe one last breath, but he cannot. His body convulses and then he lies completely still. He is dead. The 41-year-old seeker and accused murderer from Canada faces the sky as he lies lifeless in the mud and the dirt of the Amazon rainforest. Sebastian's body, along with his motorcycle and gun, would later be discovered in two shallow graves about 700 meters outside of Victoria Gracia. With the whole world now watching, Peruvian investigators would descend upon the village of Victoria Gracia seeking answers. Forensics would indicate that there was gunpowder residue on Sebastian's clothing. Some would question this finding as he was buried in mud for several days before tests could even be conducted. Yeah, at first they didn't find any traces of gunpowder on Sebastian's hands, which led some to believe um, at first that he, he wasn't the killer. But then further testing confirmed that they did find some residue on his, on his clothing and his hands. The authorities would identify the gun as the same 9mm Taurus pistol that was purchased from Glocko Utia, 
Although the sale was irregular, it was not illegal. Shell casings from the scene would also match this pistol. Investigators would also find personal items in Sebastian's rented room. And this is really kind of important to me. I didn't know anything about this. Um, the items included a book, which was the happiness equation, along with a hunting knife, a wrestling mask, and sleeping pills, which were specifically Zopoclone. And there were two other prescriptions from Canada. One of these prescriptions was olanzapine, an antipsychotic drug used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. The other was clonazepam, an anti-anxiety medication, which we literally just talked about in the Catherine Campbell case, yep. otherwise known as Ciprolex. Yeah. So it's unclear if Sebastian Woodruff was taking ayahuasca on his last trip to Peru, but a person should not be mixing ayahuasca and antipsychotics. Or ayahuasca and severe mental illness. Yeah, and they actually recommend if you are going to do ayahuasca, you just do it after a period of fasting. And, and that was another thing that came into this as well, is that there was a period of time where Sebastian Woodruff was doing sage fasting, Mm -hmm. which is quite dangerous from what I understand. Like you're not giving your body any nutrients. You're just starving yourself. Yeah. In May of 2018, Peruvian prosecutors would say that all evidence points to Sebastian Woodruff being the killer of Olivia Arevalo. Yeah. So that kind of ended their investigation into that case. And then they moved on to who killed Sebastian Woodruff. So Peru's attorney general ordered the arrest of two men wanted in connection to Sebastian's killing, Jose Ramirez Rodriguez and Nicolas Mori Guillamarez, both from Victoria Gracia, were identified through the cell phone video showing the lynching. As far as we know, these men were detained, but it's unclear if a trial or a prosecution has been held to this point. Apparently there was actually four of them mm -hmm. uh, and they all kind of were on the run. Ronald Suarez, a leader in the Shipipo-Kanibo tribe, said that Woodruff's killers acted on a spur of the moment and resorted to traditional justice. But we are a peaceful people who have always lived in harmony with nature, he added. It uh, should be noted here that capital punishment was outlawed in Peru in 1979. Yeah, they aren't a capital punishment country. Reports out of Peru have been confusing at best. This coupled with the fact that there were no eyewitnesses to Olivia Aravalo's murder have led some people to believe that Sebastian Woodruff was not the only suspect. Another eyewitness statement or a rumor that has gone around is that three men rode in on a motorcycle. One of them hopped off, shot Olivia, and then disappeared into the jungle while the motorcycle drove off. Other theories are that Olivia was murdered by hitmen representing the illegal logging, illegal palm oil growers, or illegal mining companies. Many indigenous activists have been murdered in Peru. Many of their murders have barely been investigated. Yeah, other rumors have speculated that her death had to do with an unpaid debt uh, that didn't involve Sebastian. Another possibility is that Sebastian was a scapegoat in a larger conspiracy involving politicians who wanted Olivia dead due to her success in the ayahuasca tourism industry. The distrust of Peruvian authorities has left the people of Victoria Gracia feeling vindicated for the execution of Sebastian Woodruff, but it has left his friends and family confused and saddened. In the fallout of Sebastian Woodruff's death, his friends and family would speak out in disbelief from their homes in the Comox Valley. I just don't believe that he would do that. It's not in his nature said Mickey Montgomery, Sebastian Woodruff's neighbor. He 
You never even saw him raise a hand to his dog. As long as I knew Sebastian, I've never seen him do a mean or cruel thing, or even talk that way. He was always just trying to help. I remember him willingly helping my elderly husband, so easily, just focusing on his needs and doing what would be helpful with such respect and kindness. She also recalls Sebastian Woodruff would spend countless hours with his son, teaching him about various things in nature. He was a beautiful soul. Part of our grief is that this was all put on tape, on the internet, on television, and his little son is going to have to live with that. In this day and age, it's so cruel. Another neighbor, Leslie Johnson, wrote the following. He never became comfortable with the traditional family or the expectations of Western culture on what a man should become. He was not traditional in any sense of the word, and perhaps this isolated him somewhat from the conservative values that surrounded him. He was also strong-willed and opinionated, though never aggressive, and he enjoyed discussions with people who had widely different perspectives from him. Yeah, she said she knew him to display just true kindness uh, for his fellow man and all creatures large and small. She said he showed love and respect, always cherishing the moment, exhibited a sense of play and experimentation, and, quote, a marvelous wonder for the natural world. She said she remembered him with fondness and with deep sadness for how he met his end. Gary Woodruff, Sebastian's father, is also in disbelief. We never had any guns here at home, and have never even talked about them in any way, shape, or form. So him getting a gun is totally 100% out of character, or even wanting a gun. He's never talked to me about it, and as far as I know, he's never talked to any other family members about being down there and needing protection. Another friend would state, We've been in shock. It's pretty traumatic to hear. It just felt like a scam because there's no way this person, Sebastian, is capable of that. So it's clear here that friends and family of Sebastian Woodruff um, are having trouble reconciling the person that they knew and this act, uh, this murder that occurred in Peru, followed by his execution, which was so publicly shown across social media. Um, And it's just not adding up for them. But here's the thing is, there have been other weird things that have happened in ayahuasca ceremonies throughout Central South America. Yeah, there's definitely been other deaths of foreigners uh, specifically related to these ayahuasca ceremonies. Yeah, in 2014, a man named Henry Miller reportedly took ayahuasca in Colombia with a group, but his body was later found abandoned by the side of a road. And in 2015, a Canadian man killed a British man after the two took ayahuasca together at, again, a spiritual retreat in Peru. Yeah, in 2017, a New Zealand tourist named Matthew Dawson Clark reportedly died drinking ayahuasca also in Peru. For the last two years, the Canadian government has issued an extreme travel advisory to Canadians thinking of traveling to Peru. Yeah, here's a quote from that government website. Canadians are asked to exercise a high degree of caution in Peru due to high levels of crime as well as social conflicts and strikes that may occur across the country. They've also issued a regional advisory within Peru. Specific areas of Peru are on a avoid non-essential travel list. Yeah, this is due to instances of domestic terrorism, criminal activities such as drug trafficking, robberies, kidnappings, extortions, and raids. 
This regional list is long, and it includes the Ucayale region, where Victoria Gracia sits. So, as we sit here in 2020, two years removed from this event, we have two communities in two very different countries who have been drastically affected by these two deaths. We have themes of mental health, substance misuse, cultural issues, and revenge, and all of it seemingly wrapped up in the concept of spiritual enlightenment. As we said at the start of the episode, there is a lot of speculation. More than we would prefer for this podcast, but we felt it was important to cover this story despite the facts um, that have been blurred or hard to come by. There are some really amazing journalists out there who did manage to get some details out of Peru, namely Scott Anderson from CBC and Matthew Bremerton from Men's Journal. So at the end of this case, it's unclear and will likely forever be unclear if anyone ever did any time for Sebastian's murder. Yeah, it seems like the the last of the information coming out of Peru was probably 2019. There was a little bit coming out. And then obviously we had COVID-19 this year. Mm-hmm. So I haven't, I didn't find anything with a 2020 date on it. We, so nobody has gone to jail for some, nobody's been arrested for murdering Sebastian Woodruff. Well, allegedly there was those two people that were. They were detained. Yeah, but then what? That was it. So it's it's very, very likely that that will be it. I think that's it. Forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll never we'll never get any, you know, justice for the family that lost their their son, brother, yeah. friend. And that's the way I see it too, but then sometimes I read it and I'm like this guy was accused of killing, mm-hmm. you know, uh, an, a living ancestor mm-hmm. as well, but then there was no trial. There was no there was no trial. Yeah. So it's just a it's it's a really devastating case from a lot of angles. Um and, and I don't I don't feel it's solved. No. I was, I was just about to say, unfortunately, it's one of those cases that feels a little bit, but now what? Unresolved. Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying something new this week. We are an independent podcast, and as such, we don't make money off of the podcast, but we absolutely love doing it. If you would like to help us out, we have started a Buy Me a Coffee account. If you want to buy us a coffee so that we can stay up late nights researching and recording the podcast, we would be forever grateful. We will put our buy me a coffee link in the show notes, or you can search buy me a coffee slash TNTC pod. Yeah. And all donations will go to coffee, cat food, and podcast equipment. And we truly, truly appreciate it. So we will have a new episode for you in two weeks. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe, you guys.